this episode of 51 Vets, we sit down with Dan Lee, a friend of four years, a very close uh, uh, partner in helping transitioning veterans get jobs. Uh, he is a partner at Comvest Credit. And Dan, I would love to turn it over to you for a little bit of background uh, from a high level about what you do. And then I'll turn it over to uh, the guys on the, on the call here to kind of give some quick intros as well. Awesome. Yeah, no, listen, it's my pleasure. Um, great to meet everybody. Looking forward to a fun discussion. Uh, Dan Lee with Convest Partners. Uh, I've been with Convest for about 10 years. We're a lending platform focused on the lower middle market. Uh, I've been in lending for the better part of 20 years and um, started on the risk side and then moved into business development. I will say not totally willingly, but um, eventually once I embraced it, it's been actually a lot of fun. And, and I realized there's golf involved, which is bananas. So, um, so that's been good. I, I would say in terms of, you know, building our firm, um, there are three of us that really kind of built it over the years. And so got experience in sort of how you, how you put something together. Um, and also it kind of knowing your strength, your strengths and weaknesses, and maybe being completely blind to some weaknesses. I, I realized, um, I didn't realize that I was told that I'm a terrible manager and, um, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm great at business development, but I'm just not a good administrator. And so I, that was tough for me to let go of, but um, it's made me vastly, vastly better at my job. And um, I'm mo moving the needle now in ways that I, that I haven't ever um, in my career. So that's been, that's a cool realization at 48. Um, so that's my, that's my story. I'm here to, here to help any way I can. And not just on this call guys, you know, just I'm a resource. So, you know, if you, you come across things, it doesn't make sense to you, you're scratching your head thinking, God, I'd love to bounce this off somebody. I, I don't know. I, I won't have the answer, but I'm a sounding board and I'm here to here to help you guys are. Um, it's incredible what you guys have done. So thank you. And uh, let me know how I can repay the favor. Awesome. And we'll come back to, you know, expanding on what you do day to day what Convest does, what does that mean, private equity versus private credit? What do you do in a BD function day to day? Um, but before we get into that, uh, Zach, can you give your, your background? Yeah, I uh, am a active duty SEAL, have about a year left on my contract, um, looking to transition in private equity, uh, small business owner, um, current MBA uh, student at UCLA, uh, Anderson and looking to transition from the West Coast to the East Coast. And one of the things that you're kind of thinking through is like, is private equity the route? Is banking the route? Do you go on, on if you go into private equity, is it on the investment team? Is it on the BD team? Um, do you go bulge bracket? Do you go to boutique? What's the highest probability with a limited time frame? Things like that. Uh, Mike Loray. I didn't, know how to spell I didn't know how to say it. I've been saying it incorrectly for the past. No, you said you said it perfectly. Uh, Loray is the right way to say it. Most people pronounce it Lore, which is incorrect. So thank you for getting my name right. <laughs> uh, I am Mike Loray, 20-year veteran, uh, SEAL, Master Chief currently, looking to retire in February 2021. I'm currently doing a fellowship or internship at an independent sponsor um, here locally in Virginia Beach. Uh, and I, I'm trying to pursue routes into the business development, um, you know, space for private equity, mainly on the boutique side, the lower middle market. I find it incredibly fascinating. And I think there's a lot of opportunity based off of my soft skills that I've learned over this 20 year career that I could apply immediately 
um, for a lot of those smaller shops that have a fund. And Mike, you were also, I think another filter that you were thinking through is Florida, like specifically within all the funds there. Yeah. Yeah. In a perfect world, I'd like to end up in South Florida or on the Tampa in the Tampa area, although that kind of limits the uh, search. So my primary goal is to find a good shop where I could bring value, but then I could also be exposed to the transaction side of the house, the operations piece and how the entire business is constructed and how it all plays together. And I think, yeah, Dan, that would be great to kind of expand it to in a little bit of the pros and cons of being at a larger firm in a BD function versus smaller firm, or maybe you're like number two BD person, or they don't even have a BD function. You're cool. You think, look like you can do this. Welcome to BD. Um, uh, uh, Merrick, what about you? Yeah, let's try it. <laughs> I was a West Coast SEAL and got out in 2018 uh, to go to the Wharton full-time MBA program. Graduated this last May, had been pursuing commercial real estate investing roles, but that industry is kind of tight right now. Um, since then, I interned with a first raise venture capital fund and also a real estate fintech startup trying to copy iShares model, but for REITs. Um, since then, I've been investigating kind of the perpetual capital models for investment holding companies and also venture or startup studios. So, Aperture. And uh, <laughs> but I think that's really good. It, it seems a lot of people are in that same phase of like, you know, spend a month or two of doing a lot of info interviews that helps you kind of narrow up by 5%, by 5%. And then in the past couple of weeks, we've also been working together like intros to people at like series A companies, series B, and then the investors around that, um, as well as like the buyout community. Um, Mike Sims. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Dan, thanks again. Um, so I'm a Marine Raider getting out here in the next few months, my undergrads in economics, definitely focused on finance or in the financial universe. Um, but as uh, Jordan just said, my aperture too is, if we're talking about five degree increments, mine's about 20 degrees. I'm currently in Goldman Sachs's uh, Veterans Integration Program, which is basically an exploratory kind of immersion program at Goldman Sachs offers. I apologize. One second, I have a lawnmower uh, landscaper. No, it's okay. You can go. We, it's fine. I don't know if it's big. Um, so basically, I'm really just trying to find out where I'm going to land in industry. There are so many interests. There's so many things to do. Um, so at this point in my transition process, I'm really just looking to learn from different people who are in industry to kind of narrow that focus down to maybe a 5% uh, aperture, if you will, and then really focus all of my resources into leaping into that career. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm coastal agnostic. It's really about uh, whether I'm going to be a fit for the, the company and whether or not that career path is a fit for me. So this is an exciting time to listen to all your experience and all the insight perspective and advice that you can give us. So appreciate it. Awesome. So, so Dan, um, first question is, so what would you say you do around here? Um, <laughs> like what do you do in a, what is a BD function? What is, how does that play into overall firm? And then guys, if you can take it from here and I'd love for you to take over the questions. Yeah, it's a great question, Jordan. And, uh, two or three years ago, um, I would have had a really hard time answering that question is the God's honest truth. So um, I moved from um, sort of one of the three people managing the business. Um, I, was, I was 
booted out to to a sales role, which felt like a huge demotion. Just being honest, I was like, "This is bullshit." Um, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm one of the people that built this place. I'm supposed to be in the corner office. I'm up on my pedestal. So um, I had to learn how to get good at sales. And actually, COVID really helped me because in March I was pretty sure I was going to lose my job because I had done a bunch of restaurant deals, and that's not a good look. Um, when they, when they don't reopen. So fortunately they're all doing really well, but, um, but I basically started acting like I was going to lose my job and, and learned how to be great at sales again. And this is stupidly simple. The answer is, is just, um, call, 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 just, you know, get out there and find ways to connect, engage. Um, so my, my day to day is just, I'm trying to figure out who can I call that might have a deal for me. Um, I orient my, my days, my weeks, my months, it's not terribly strategic. I don't want to uh, overdo it, but what I make sure is that I have a full calendar. That, that's for me. What I need to, to, to do is, is have a calendar where I'm going to leave the day feeling like I talked to 12 people today. Each of them taught me something. Um, maybe they had a deal for me. Maybe they didn't. I mean, I live in a 1% world. Business development is an incredibly um, low probability world. So you're going you're gonna to deal with rejection, um, loss, uh, humiliation. I mean, just like, and I don't mean to be overly dramatic about it. It's just part of the job. Like if you're going to be good at it, you got to learn to kind of engage and know that I'm going to learn to love this baby. And 99 times out of hundred, I'm going to be told that baby is ugly or that baby doesn't want me. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's a, it's a really, um, tough function to be successful. So you really need to kind of learn, I've, I've learned how to like stay super engaged and, and embrace the uncertainty of not knowing how it's going to end. And then don't make it awkward <laughs> when it doesn't end well, just like move on. It's business, just move on. Right. So, um, so that's, I mean, that's my, those are my learnings. I would say um, it's great. The, the mix of what you guys are thinking about is, it's, it is awesome. And I would not be, um, don't worry that your aperture is wide. I think that it's just, you know, if you know what you want to do, Awesome. Hone in on it and and focus. If you have some areas of interest, you think this might be, you know, I want to figure it out. Don't be afraid to explore. I mean, I, I, I started in accounting, went to lending, went to investment banking. Investment banking taught me um, investment bankers are, are glass half full people. You got to be optimistic. You got to be can do. Lenders are glass half empty. That's just reality because and private equity is glass half full too, by the way. But Lenders glass half empty because we don't get any of the upside. We only we only live with the loss. I get my my best deals. I get eight percent. You know, a good deal, a great deal. I get eight percent. A good deal, I get eight percent. If I lose money, it's incredibly hard to make that up. Private equity, you can make up a loss very easily. You, you lose all your money on one investment, get a three x on another. Your investors are happy. And I'm not. I don't mean to make private equity sound easy. It's not. But just, that's just the dynamics. If I lose a lot of money on a deal as a lender. I got to do 10 great ones to make up for it. Whereas private equity, you can do one. Venture capital, you can do one out of five because you get you know a 20X. So, um, so, so I realized for myself, I'm a glass half empty guy. I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm from, from the Midwest. I don't, I don't buy into the upside. Um, but then I realized I'm not just really a glass half empty. That's, a, that's just a risk guy. I'm a little schizophrenic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist in ways. And so that's why I went into business development. So if you think you're more of a cynic, um, then think risk. That's where, that's where you want to be. Think operations. If you think you're more of a sales guy, um, 
think business development, you know, that's so that could be investment banking, that could be uh, business development within private equity, Mike. Um, but you got to be willing to embrace the fact that the tough thing about business development, period, is that especially if you're going to shop, Jordan, to your comment, going to a shop that doesn't have it currently and you're building it out. Business development can be a unicorn, man. When you don't have it, everyone has their idea of what it looks like. And no one's, you know, some people say, oh, it's a pharmaceutical sales rep. It's that investment banker. It's that um, guy that was a risk guy that turns into a business development guy. Everyone has their idea of what it should be. And that can be dangerous because then the organization isn't totally clear on what they want you to do on how they're going to accomplish success. So if you're looking to go to a place that doesn't have a business development function, the most important thing, Mike, on the front end is just figure out if they know what they want. If they tell you, we're just looking for deals, run. I mean, run. And that's not saying it couldn't be a great shop. No, I just shouldn't say run. But just if they're not willing to, to explore it further with you, run. If they say, look, we're looking for a deal flow. Okay, great. Tell me what that means. How am I going to be successful? Because you can't control if you bring in a deal that's going to close. You can't. You, they're they're going to decide whether to do the deal or not. What you can do is bring in more candidates that qualify well, that's it. And then it's a numbers game. So you need to figure out, guys, tell me, how will you define success as, as me for me as business development? And I'll say one more thing and then shut up. The way we define it, the way we think about it is there's um, accomplishments and there's activity, okay? Activity, we define what we wanna do. I wanna make 300 calls a month. I want to um, see 100 deals a quarter. I want to see um, 25 deals a quarter that we that I screen to my committee, meaning I think it's interesting enough that we should issue a term sheet. I want to issue 12 term sheets every two months. So what does all this mean? What it means is I can't control if they're actually going to pick me. All I can control is if I'm finding deals that are interesting enough to my guys that they say, yeah, let's go try to win that. Let's go, let's go try to win that. And, th- and then there's the accomplishment side which is how many deals did you close? How many dollars did you put to work for the fund? Because at the end of the day, that's why we're all here. So accomplishment comes over time if the activity is there. So as a BD guy, and especially as a new and developing BD guy, you got to make sure they're focused on the activity side and, and, and that they agree the accomplishment will become. Because what happens in some organizations is they say, let's go find someone for $200,000 We'll give them a bunch of upside or maybe a hundred thousand with a bunch of upside of closed deals. And what's the worst that could happen? They're not really committed to that position. So whether they're paying you a hundred thousand, 500,000, a million dollars a year, you got to make sure they know that you're They're committed to the fact that you're going to control what you can by the hour of work, by the day of work, by the month of work. And that over time, that will translate to success, but it might take two years. It might not be three months, it might not be six months. And what happens, it gets really awkward in their board meetings. They start saying, Jesus, we paid this guy $200,000, $400,000 the last two years. He hasn't closed a deal. What are, what are we doing here? Right. I mean, and that's, that happens a lot in firms that don't have a BD function and then hire someone and say, let's give it a shot. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but that's sort of a lot of my learnings from, you know, being in the industry and seeing how, seeing where people succeed and where really, really good, strong, successful candidates fail. It's not the failure of the candidate. It's just not the right fit. I got a question on, you're talking about success and the success rate. So where have you seen the most success 
when you've actually you've done your outreach campaigns, whether it's the boutique investment banks, it's the brokers or it's the family offices, it's the law firms are going out directly as a proprietary deal directly to a company that your firm looks at um, industry wise or that space to target it. Where have you seen the highest probability of um, deal flow? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I will say one of the things that makes us a little bit different, um, a lot of our competitors focus on lending to private equity sponsors. And when that's your model, your calling effort is super simple. You call the private equity sponsors, and, and I don't mean to make light of their job. It's a difficult job, but, but your calling effort is simple. You just make sure you're calling that private equity sponsor enough that he's thinking of you when they, when they have a deal. Um, so um, our calling effort, because we do a lot of non-sponsored lending, is much, much broader. And let's say you're working for a, a smaller private equity firm down the road, right? Your calling effort will be much, much broader. You can't just call Houlihan Loki. You can't just call the um, Baird and Lincoln, the mid-tier investment banks. If you're, if you're working lower middle market, you're looking for a proprietary is a you know, very difficult thing to find these days because... There, there's a broker touching everything, right? There's a guy at the country club who knows someone he's going to hire, but proprietary to me means, you know, it's not in a, in an institution. It's less than five people looking at it. I think that's, we think of that as being relatively proprietary. I'm talking to the CEO, right? So I'm in, in a direct dialogue. Um, so to answer your question, it's call, call it's 80, 20. I spent 80% of my time calling on, the 20% that I think are most fruitful, 20% calling on 80%. So, you know, that just like casting a wide net. So if you looked at my calendar this week, what you'd see is I'm spending a lot of time with the people that where I think I have um, uh, high caliber leads, the Glengarry leads. And I'm spending 20% of my time trying to figure out which part of these 20%, there's, there's two or three or 4% in that 20 that I'm going to move into the 80. By the way, there's, 10, 20% of the 80, I got to get back down to the 20. Because yeah, he, we did a deal with them two years ago, but they're not showing me any love these days. There could be a million reasons for that. They might, <laughs> they, they, I might've pissed them off, but I might've done something, they didn't given them an answer they didn't like. I told them their baby's ugly. Um, they might just have figured out that we're too expensive for them. I mean, there's a million reasons, right? But so a great relationship one moment doesn't mean forever, but man, when, when you hear maybe the most important takeaway, when you build a relationship that is fruitful, just friggin' bear hug it. I mean, just bear hug it and hang on. That's something that I've taken for granted um, a lot in my career. And you want to just make sure the easiest way to, if you find someone that has the type of deals that, that you, that convert for you, holy shit, just like figure out how can I be more helpful to you? How can I make your life easier? How can I show you deals? How can I do things that my competitors aren't doing because they're thinking of business development in a very binary way. They, they call, they take you to lunch. Do you have any deals for me? No. Okay. See you next quarter. Like that's, that's 90% of business development. It's just, you know, am I, am I making my reps? Am I hitting my reps? That's, that's fine. That, that succeeds. That works. The real, the real way to build business success in business development is to figure out how do I create a brand for myself that's known for hustle and, um, and is distinguished is, you know, like I want to do, I want to do business with that guy. That's a, that's a, that's a guy, you know, high integrity, um, someone that's, he's, he's looking for ways to help me when he doesn't need to, there's nothing in it for him. So, um, you know, just figure out how to distinguish yourself with the people that like the, the top 10%, your Glengarry leads, just smother them. 
Now, let me just say on the Zach on the on the risk side, um, I think I started my career in risk. It's a it's a great place to start, and, and it doesn't preclude you from moving in into BD over time if you decide that you know that that's a better fit as your career evolves. There's also leadership roles in both, so I mean you can have a great career in risk slash operations. Um, you can have a great career in business development. Frankly, risk has less, ironically, risk in it because um, the, that world is very, very well understood by private equity. They understand exactly what they're looking for when they hire a risk guy. They're looking for a certain level of, of skills, talent, um, knowledge. A BD is just much less defined. So I'd say, you know, not doesn't make it the right call for you, but um, it is lower risk in the sense that it's a little more square peg, square hole. It's less of that unicorn factor that I mentioned where, you know, I think this is what's going to make BD successful. Um, and it's a great grounding for just understanding our, our best uh, BD guys were risk guys. So we have a lot of risk guys that never move into BD. And, and if you met them, you'd go, oh yeah, that guy's not going to be a BD guy. Great guys, but they're just not the kind of um, sunshine kind of going to develop into the gregarious, you know, they're just, they're good risk guys or phenomenal risk guys. But our, our best business development guys were risk guys because they can talk both sides. They know how to be salesmen, but they can also rein it in and say, well, hold on a minute. That's not, you know, that's not right. We can't do that. Um, they know how to balance the risk side of the equation and, and um, frankly, just be, be extraordinarily commercial. Awesome. Uh, quick question. Can you talk a little bit about uh, just big picture comp between you know, looking at the VPs and BD, the, your stereotypical, uh, you know, what does that look like for that thousand foot view picture and, and, and market, you know, across all market, right? I know it's going to vary depending on the shop or depending on the area. Sure. So in, in BD specifically? Yes, please. Yeah. So, um, Absolutely varies. Larger shops have a very cookie cutter kind of approach. I would say VP, um, and it obviously by market, if you're in New York or Chicago, um, I would say it's somewhere generally starting out, it's probably in the two to 300,000 range, give or take. Um, in a, it's sort of, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Don't quote me on it, but that's what, I, that's my sense. Uh, it might be 150 to 300,000. It's probably going to have some component of upside tied to either, you know, tangibles to, to, to both components. The way I think comp packages are structured best is tie some of it to achievement, to the actually putting money to work and getting deals done, and some of it to accomplishment. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to um, to tasks, to to activities. So uh, have some that's um, achievement. So you're getting, you're, you're aligned on success, but also uh, make sure that you're being paid for the fact that you're doing the work that's going to lead to achievement, even if the timeline is uncertain. So I would say something between 150, 300,000 in, in a core market. If you're going to a, you know, a third tier market, um, it's probably more like 100 to 200, maybe 250 with upside of, you know, it could be uh, 50 to 100 percent on top of that for uh, target bonuses. So and then and it'll it'll go and then if you're successful, you know, it goes up rapidly from there. I mean, you get, once you get kind of move into the MD category, you're talking half a million to a million with success bonuses. Um, you go to partner, you're talking, you know, you can, it's a million to three, just depending on if you have a good year or a great year. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Dan, is that on for partners? Is that across basically funds that are, call it, you know, 250 up to 5 billion or like how much variability is there? Um, and yeah. also, can you talk about like a really important question, which every BD person wonders, which is how and when and how do you best negotiate carry? Yeah. Okay. Good question. So in terms of size of the firm, um, yes, size of the firm is very important. Um, in terms of in terms of comp, and let me say one thing before I answer that question: um, when you're starting out, when you're when you're coming in, comp should be the fifth or sixth, sixth thing you're thinking of. I know that's easy for me to say sitting here today, but um, the the way you fit into your first role, whether or not you're there in ten years, is going to be a bigger determinant of your success than fifty grand here or there. I mean, it's just by by a magnitude of ten x. Um, so you, comp is important. It's honestly, it's an important signifier to the other side to know that you value yourself and you understand the market and you're, you're negotiating and standing up for yourself. So it's not, I'm not telling anyone to, um, to fold on it or not care about it, but in terms of making a selection, um, fit the way you feel about the culture is just, um, it's, it's so cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, just incredibly, incredibly important that you, that you feel like you're surrounded by people you can really learn from and you, you trust. And because um, the number one thing that's going to help you succeed early on is feedback. And if the people you're working with that aren't really bought into you, they're, they're, gonna, they're not going to give you the right kind of feedback. And not giving you the right kind of feedback, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt your trajectory. So you guys are coming out of a unique situation relative to your peers where you have backgrounds that people uh, cherish. They just, you know, they just like, it, it's, it's something that they, they relish. Frankly, it's something you got to be careful about because there's some people who say, I want to hire that guy because he's got to be fucking awesome, right? Because he did that. And they don't have bad intention, but they don't understand that just because you achieved that remarkable, you were, you were a SEAL, you're no more prepared to succeed than the guy that's coming out of MBA. And, and yes, you have all the characteristics that made you successful as a SEAL, but it doesn't mean that they sort of assume you're going to be able to figure it out because you figured out that and you've been in the most intense situations a human being can be in and you were willing to put yourself, you volunteered to put yourself into that situation. But it's very different when you're sitting in a, in a seat going, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Right. And I don't know if I can ask for help because I'm not sure I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. And um, they don't know that you're struggling. So it, it's just, you know, just know that people are going to, um, there are going to be some people that want to hire you because, because they want to tell their friends, they, they work with a seal. I mean, that sounds, and they're not, there's a lot more that want to do it because they know of all the characteristics you have and they know of the, 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 you know, the character. Um, so I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be dismissive of, you know, it's, it's a, um, you're going to, you're going to find a lot more interest than a regular candidate is the good news. Um, so come back to comp at smaller firms, um, Man, um, it's it's gonna be on a lower end that, that kind of you know. So let's say in a core market, it, smaller firms can be more like 150, maybe you know maybe 200. They just don't have the resources. A, a two to four hundred million dollar fund doesn't have the resources to pay half a million dollars to a BD guy. But there's that trade off of you can also get more exposure to the execution side. You can get more exposure to how the business actually runs, yeah. and also there's a probably another cultural element to it that you, you're working directly with the people who are raising that $500 million fund who are doing everything. 
Yeah. So 100%. So here's here's two different paths I'll, I'll give you. One is you go to a larger firm that is a very you know plug and play. You get the skills and knowledge, and then you bring that to a smaller firm where you can get those sort of um, knowledge and resources. The risk of going to a small firm is they don't have the capacity to train you, the, the same capacity to train you. They don't have the institutional knowledge. They're, they're deal guys, right? When guys spit out and start their own firm, they're hungry, right? That's good, but they're hungry. They're trying to figure out how do I get deals done? I got to feed my family, right? I got, I'm, I'm waking up every day at zero and I left a cushy job at a bigger firm and my wife's going to leave me if I don't get fucking deals done. So I can't afford to have this PD guy come to my office all the time saying, hey, should I call this guy or that guy? Is it, it, I call this guy and he has this deal. Is this interesting? Is it? So that's not a knock on small firms at all. It's part of what makes them successful is that they're super duper hungry and they've made the decision. So I'm going to go from comfort to hunger. I think I'm better when I'm hungry. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of small, but you just got to know there's bandwidth issues there. And just understand that, you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to manage. Um, there's good, you're going to have to be more self-sufficient at a small firm than a large firm generally. And Dan, that's an interesting point because, you know, the, there's a well-beaten path from your undergrad to getting into investment banking, which then opens up doors for you in all kinds of directions. And then a lot of guys, then they do some investment banking stuff when they're young, then they get their MBA, they come back, come back as associate and then peel off to hedge fund or PE or something, or they stay in or whatever, but that's generally, you know, how the door opens. And it's interesting from our standpoint, we have, we've already opened our door relative to our industry, if you will, in special operations, which is, you know, highly competitive, difficult to get in long-term investment, the wife's never happy kind of thing, uh, because the hours invested, um, you know, and then, so there's a lot of, you know, lower market, middle market firms or, or smaller companies or, or funds that are willing to ingest guys who are hungry, guys and gals who are hungry, but they don't have that, ac that academic experience in terms of that onboarding process that investment bank would have. So we find ourselves in a predicament because in order for us to secure a spot in an investment bank, usually the people that we're gonna be you know, competing for those spots are 22, 24 years old. Right. And they can, and they don't have any baggage. They have no, they have nothing else going on. Their, their time is going to be fully invested in that project. So it, whereas we would, I mean, it would be optimal for us to get, you know, kind of a structured uh, onboarding, if you will, into the industry, but we're not competitive in the stance that in the spec, I'm 38 years old. Uh, I have two kids. I've already lived quite a bit of life at this point. Um, so while being a special operator, being in the military or a vet or what have you is great, a great conversational piece. People like to talk about it because it's different. It, it loses steam as soon as you start pivoting into, or, okay, what options do I have? So the risk is I can go into, there's, it's maybe a little bit easier to go into a smaller firm relative to Goldman, let's say, or Apollo or KKR, where they have well-being tracks and a good development pipeline for younger talent. So we can go to these smaller firms where everybody has an appetite and there's a buffet of food, but I don't necessarily know how to chew it. I don't know how to use the chopsticks, so to speak. So then that's the risk that I'm taking on is there's a chance that I don't actually generate any business because I don't have the skills. So that's, that's where, you know, I, I, over this last two months or so, I've realized it's where it's a, it's a difficult spot because I want the, 
I want the really kind of rigorous structured training pipeline because it gives me more confidence. I can get more of it in a shorter amount of time. And then the risk is, and then I'm also getting paid and the risk is lowered in terms of I'm, I'm, you know, building a set of, of tools and skills that I can apply and probably be more successful in terms in the short term, in terms of generating business or, or do, being productive in whatever it is that I'm going into in that part of finance, you know? So like, for example, um, I'm in this Goldman Sachs program. I've been talking to guys at Citibank and Bank of America and a couple of other places. And it's my age always comes up. So then if I go shoot for another place, you know, that where there's a BD role that's open, I'm not, a lot of people aren't willing to talk to me because I have zero book. I have no, I have lots of people I can call, but maybe 1% of them has any kind of, you know, significance relative to generating business for that firm. So it's, it's pretty difficult, um, you know, where that risk is, you know, so you know, which is a, you gotta be, look, I think super, super self-aware. I mean, it's funny. I was, I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, you've got to be honest, you, you guys have all proven you're willing to eat shit, right? Because you, just what you've done, you're, you're, you're willing to do it. Right. But, and I was going to say, you got to be willing to eat shit from a 27 year old. Like it's one thing from a CEO, right? It's another from a 27 year old who's a fucking asshole. Like, you know, that she's just like, who's just being a prick because part of investment banking is, is running the gauntlet. You know, I went through it. I ate shit. I worked you know, 18 hour days and doing meaningless work at times, work that was unnecessary and made more urgent than it needed to be by a factor of 10 and work that I stayed up all night on that was literally thrown out the next morning. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's that. You got to make sure you're, you're willing to sign up for that if you're going to go into something like investment banking. The other challenge, though, as you were talking, is the managers have to be comfortable that the 27-year-old is actually willing to tell you to eat shit. Like when you give him a nasty look, it's different than the 23, 24-year-old <laughs> giving him a nasty look. It is the, 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 the pencil. You know, and I just, think there's a, another really interesting point here. Um, there's one of the vets we've, uh, we know in the transition community, he went to a bulge bracket investment bank. He was an associate after he got his MBA. And he said one of the reasons why he felt like he failed in that is that he was always walking on eggshells and he forgot who he was. And it, you don't have, he went on the other side of being more super conservative. I don't want to hurt anything as opposed to the super aggressive, but there's like, just be who you are, be professional and how to carry yourself. And like, it's okay that you're at that stage in life and also doing analyst or associate work, just being who you are. Right. Yeah, no, I think so, Mike. It's it's you've got to be you got to be able to acknowledge that um, the 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 strengths um, and weaknesses you bring to the table. You've got to be cognizant of um, maybe I go. To, I'm a huge fan of investment banking. I mean, I I just am because I think um, just for a stint, like just because you you get a taste of everything. You get you just sort of get put through your paces. Gives you a chance to to figure out, am I more of a debt guy or an equity guy or an M&A guy? Um, and then, and it opens doors, frankly. So I think, you know, that's, I think that's great experience, period. Um, just as consulting is um, for either of those for private equity. But I think, um, yeah, I think your, your points are well-made and, and um, it's, you've got to figure out how to, um, if you go to a smaller firm, they're just, they're not going to be well-equipped. 
So you've got you get you can that's not a bad decision by any means. Jordan's points about you get more direct access, you get more responsibility, you get more opportunity are all true. All of those bring more risk because you know people you got to you got to be moving the needle there and you got to figure out how to figure out with them with hard honest conversations on the front end are you really ready to help me succeed because i can't do this on my own and um, i don't need you hand holding by any means right but i do need guidance and i need feedback and coaching and um a lot of a lot of them are going to say yeah, yeah yeah no we get it we get it we get it come on it'll be great you just got to figure out how to, how to um, really, really press on that and figure out, get past the hell yeah, come on, let's let's go, you know, and and, and figure out how how to how are you actually gonna? Um, it's not just are you willing to do it. It's how are you gonna put in place some sort of mechanism for coaching? Doesn't that could be a weekly coffee, could be a weekly drink, could be like whatever. Just find some way that they'll say yes, I love that. Put thirty minutes in my calendar, and some weeks it'll be five minutes, some weeks it'll turn into an hour, right? And sometimes we'll be high-fiving and sometimes we'll be crying. Um, but, you know, you've got to make sure they're willing to give you time. And if they're not, then your odds of, of success are, they're random. I'm not going to say they're low, but they're random. You might succeed, you might not. You've got to figure out how can you improve your odds of success. I would also, you know, just to jump on the back of that too, is if a firm does actually go through and hire you, then they're probably willing to do that because they're knowing you're not coming. If they're, I would imagine that's kind of a already, a, maybe it's unspoken, but a, a known thing that they're going to take risk because this is a hungry guy with a proven track record and, you know, they see potential. So they're probably, I would imagine that whoever's making the hiring decisions collectively are saying, this guy's going to need some, you know, extra uh, investment on our part collectively to make, make sure he's going to be successful. So. so I think that's a good, it's a fair assumption, but, but just be careful in the sense that when you're in a room and people are saying, Hey, we should hire a, a, a vet. There are very, very few people that are going to say no, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's, it's just, that's just a reality, you know? And so, but they don't, you got to make sure they've had the conversation about what that entails, you know? And so your, your assumption is right. If they've said, Hey, we want to find a square peg for this round hole, right? We've got the guy coming 28 year old coming out of MBA. He's our square peg. We've, we've done that a million times. We think, and it's also true that an organization that's, that's willing to do this has most likely been very thoughtful about it has said, why are we doing this? We're not doing this um, to do them a favor. We're doing this for this. It's the same reason that you focus on diversity. You don't do it so so we can put up our um, board package and show that we have diversity. If you don't buy into the fact that diversity is actually meaningful, meaningfully helpful in investment decisions, then then you're it, it's just you're actually setting when you when you bring people of other backgrounds in, you're actually setting them up to fail, because and th and then that propagates the the, the, the idea that, well, it's just a white man's industry. So um, that's kind of a tangent, but, you know, one that we, we are ourselves um, struggling with. And so when you bring, so, so diversity is something that is challenging because there's no playbook for it. Right. And so in this context um, it's, they've most likely made the decision from a place of, we think having someone from an unconventional background 
would make us stronger as an organization, you know, and yes, there's going to be more guidance and teaching and handholding on the front end, but we're going to get phenomenal benefits from it because they're going to bring perspectives that the 28 year old coming out of, of Wharton doesn't have. It's not his fault. It's just, he's, he's been on a, he's been on the treadmill of just like the rest of the firm. Let's bring someone in that's, that's gone to hell and, and made, made voluntarily said, I want to go push myself to my limits and put myself into um, the most dangerous situations I, um, I can because I believe in the cause and I, and I believe in, in my team and I want to be, and that's, it's, what's more powerful than that, right? So um, people yeah, that I are- think looking- that There are some interesting things here. You know, when you talk about risk and return, you know, the, in, in, in decision investments, you're trying to find the outliers. You're trying to, you know, think differently about things as opposed to bringing everyone into it. So it's like, how do you position your personal message that fits that narrative? Um, I think is a really interesting concept. And you know, I, I, maybe we have, four minutes left. So I'd like to kind of wrap up with some takeaways here. Um, some of the key takeaways I've had, I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking is number one, your point about accomplishments versus activity made me think that veterans who are transitioning need to have an activity tracker. How many info interviews are you doing? Track that. And then take notes, ask for two recommendations from Dan, who are two people in Florida or whoever that you think are interesting? Hey, would you mind doing an intro? That's one takeaway is tracking activity. Another takeaway is 80-20. So find the people in your network who are going to get, who are the 80% benefit, who are the super connectors um, that you spend more time with throughout your, your transition. Uh, the third thing is talking about culture over comp, fit over fortune, and then realizing that this is a long time horizon as opposed to getting it right on the first try and you want to make the most money on the first thing. That's a, the next takeaway is um, how do you de-risk you as a candidate versus other more competitive, you know, people that might have an MBA fresh out and they did two to four years of banking. How do you de-risk that? And I think a great way is you connect with someone and say, hey, can I do like maybe a one or two month remote internship? You know, Dan, I know you have 8,000 contacts in your CRM. I bet 2% of them have full data that you want. Can I just start scrubbing that for you on a weekly basis? And then by the way, you know, it costs you nothing because your tax dollars pay for the SkillBridge program or so-called care coalition. And I, and here's what I can do specifically for you. So I think de-risking it and finding an entry point. And then the next thing, which is a, more of a question is like, you know, should you address the elephant in the room on your background and say like, listen, I know this is where I'm at, how old I am, and you can go pick an MBA, but here's what I think I can offer. And I think it almost expresses like that you are very open about where you're at. And this kind of goes into the crowd who are 30, 35 to 40, who might or might not have an MBA or the people who are over that. Um, or that sounded bad. Um, so those are my key takeaways. But guys, what are, what are your thoughts, um, Mark? What is what's uh, maybe one key takeaway you had? Yeah, it was kind of along that comment on the accomplishment versus activity. It's you know any relationship is a two-way date. So talking to a company firm or someone there is you know if they're saying something like BD, what does that mean for them? What does it mean for you? And just like functionally are you aligned on the expectations of that? Cause if you're brought on for something and your skills or what you're doing just doesn't match for that, it's 
ultimately not going to be a good fit. Cool. Um, Mike Loray. I think you covered everything. Um, honestly, how you broke down the points, I think they're all relatively uh, or incredibly essential. And the, the big, the, the other takeaway I got this is how do we not become the party favor? Um, you know, it, like, is that something that we, we end up getting an informational interview, but we end up kind of just the seal, you know, and we're like, stay on my, uh, hang on my arm. You know, this is my party favor. I, I'm, I'm kind of an instrument to show off versus somebody of substance where I have a lot of skills that I am the better candidate but you don't necessarily understand that. Um, and it's getting past that, that point. Yeah. It's that fine balance because that is one of the reasons why they're talking to you because your background is also one of the reasons why you're trying to differentiate yourself from the others, right. but you're not the trophy. Like, and I don't want to be like, I'm more than this kind of, kind of mentality. Exactly. There's more depth to us than just what's perceived in Hollywood. Um, Mike Sims. I would say that most of it's been covered, but, you know, for me personally, from the IB route, the traditional beaten path in terms of acquiring the skill sets needed to be successful, you know, down the road in any industry you go and, and reporting to that 27 year old uh, who has a conscious of how he wants to, you know, manage me. I'm totally manageable and I'm totally teachable because my long, I have long-term goals and objectives. I don't have short-term defensive traits, you know, so I, I'm there to, I'm here to learn ultimately and be successful. And I want to be, uh, I want to be a valuable asset to the company that's willing to take risk on me. So I can put a lot of that stuff behind me. And I, I've dealt with all kinds of people from that with the, starting with the adjectives from every letter in the alphabet. So I'm, I'm just really <laughs> here willing to work. So it's all great information. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate your insight. And Zach, take us home. Uh, for me, one of the biggest take homes was, uh, just really putting a lot of thought into how to deleverage from their perspective. Uh, you as a vet, they might not understand, you know, not, not necessarily the baggage, but the, the lack of um, soft or hard skills that, that might fit that you can, and you have the capacity to learn, but coming from their perspective, how to de-risk that, how to really, uh, you know, leverage your skill sets and understand both sides of that equation. Uh, and your, your point that you made about saying like, Hey, let me, teach you how to, you know, potentially coach me if there's a shortfall there uh, or help me help you uh, in the, through that process. And it being a two-way street, I think was a huge takeaway for me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Guys, Jordan, thank let me you. close it real quick if I could. Guys, I'm, I'm, I hope you found it helpful. It's, um, I'm, I can be way more helpful from here than a half an hour of my time. So I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to have answers for you. I can't, I'm not going to be able to hand you the Glengarry lead but I am here to help and um, just please, you know, if, if take nothing else away from this call, just don't be bashful. You know, you, when someone offers to help you just fucking take them up on it, you know? And I know that sometimes they go, I don't want to bother him. He's busy or that. I don't know. Just, you know, you, you're going to repay the, the favor down the road. You know, you're going to be good to the guy that reaches out to you and says, Hey, I could use a hand. So I'm here to help. Um, and you guys will pay it forward later, but I, I don't, I don't have answers, but I can, I'll do anything I can to help. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much.